2: This podcast was recorded before the coronavirus and before the 2021 Formula One regulations were delayed. So please excuse some mentions of the rule changes next year. Throughout the history of motorsport, the drivers have been on the front line of racing, but often their performance depends entirely on a group of engineers. In a special podcast series, we are going to speak to the likes of Adrian Newey, Patrick Head and Gordon Murray, about what it takes to engineer the greatest drivers in the history of our sport. Not only will we look at some of the groundbreaking technology they brought to Formula One, but we will delve into the minds of the best drivers the sport has seen. We hope you enjoy the series, Engineering Formula One's Drivers. Hello everyone and welcome to a very special Motorsport Magazine podcast series, Called engineering Formula One's drivers. Today, I'm joined by motorsports editor Joe Dunn on my left. Hello. Thank you very much for joining me. And Adrian Newey. Adrian, this is uh, an extraordinarily busy time of the year for you. Uh, We're sat in your office in front of your drawing board. Um, Thank you for sparing the time. Pleasure. Um, So today, what we're going to do is we're going to sort of split the podcast in two. We're going to talk about your relationship with some of the amazing drivers that you, you engineered in your career and then also going to talk about the sort of more technical side. And we've got lots of reader's questions, which I promise I will get to today. Um, The drivers you looked after and still continue to sort of have a relationship with now, um, I've got the list here. It's a very, very long list with a lot of world champions in it. Um, If we could just start by, sort of off the top of your head, who who did you have the kind of closest relationship with as as an engineer and, and driver?
0: It's a difficult one to answer. I mean, I think probably Bobby Rahal, um, who's back in IndyCars. I think for various reasons. First of all, two seasons, um, Which, uh, but I think more importantly, IndyCar in those days, it was just the race engineer. There was no data to look at, there were no data recorders, so it was very much the the relationship between the race engineer and the driver. in that very small environment, three mechanics, team manager, uh, Bobby and myself, then you became very, or we became very close friends. So um, we would often go out for dinner during the week. We would typically on a Friday evening kind of discuss the setup and so forth, ruminate over it, and we just developed a very close bond. As
2: As an engineer, is part of your job really a translation service? between driver and then actually what you then do with the car? Do you, you know, do, you, do you want a driver to come in and say, oh, can we change this and that? Or do you want them to say, the car's doing this?
0: Yeah. I think if you go back to the sort of old days, um, which I was right on the edge of that, then it used to be that the driver very often engineered the car from the cockpit. Um, those days are now long since gone. Well, I do encourage our drivers to... Um, if you like, critique what the engineer's suggested setup is and be involved and know what they're doing because, a very simple example, the driver comes in and says it's understeering, then there's a whole range of things an engineer might do. For instance, he might put more front wing on it or he might soften the front anti-roll bar. The driver will probably have a feel, and this is particularly the case in a Pressured practice session where you haven't got long to discuss it before you got to get out again. Which one will be the right one? So he might think actually more front wing is not what I want. It's just going to oversteer too much on corner entry, for instance. So it all depends. It all depends on that relationship, as I say. Um, I'm Going slightly off piece because to answer your question, I think uh, very early on, then in my day, then we said we didn't have data recorders. So the driver would come in and you had to learn his language or we had to learn each other's language and, and get that trust in each other. Um, Mika in particular, Mika Hakkinen, had a very different way of putting things and if you kind of took what he was saying on face value, very often you got lost. If you actually took the time to understand what he's was trying to say um, as opposed to the words he was using, then, then you got somewhere. So, as I have to say, it's personal relationships.
2: Was it, I think, was it Micah Hackenan you had a particular problem with in terms of him saying the car's understeering, but actually he was making it understeer in order to. There's was, there was something I'm sure. That's was exactly
0: right. So, Mika's a very natural driver. Um, he will adapt his driving style to suit whatever the car's doing, very often subconsciously. So, there's this particular example, um, when we first started the 98, testing the 98 car where uh, he was coming in and saying it was understeering, which was pretty much standard for Micah. Um We kept, in that case, uh, adding front wing, um, moving the mechanical balance, which is softening the front, roll bar, stiffening the rear, and he wasn't coming in and saying the understeer is any better, and if anything his lap times are getting slower and slower. And that's when I realised with him that actually what he was doing is, or what was happening, was he had a nervous car on corner entry. Um, so he was protecting from that, from the rear coming around on entry by taking a shallower, shallower and shallower line into the corner. So that by kind of taking that shallower line, he wouldn't be putting as much steering lock on early in the corner entry. But that meant that then when he did finally turn the wheel, because you obviously have to at some point as he's approaching the apex, then he was, it, it, the car's pointing in the wrong direction. He's w- pushing far too much steering lock into it. It understeers and that's come what he came in and said. And, and so that was a very good example of learning to interrogate the driver and try to get out of him what the car's really doing as opposed to his initial re- reaction of what he thinks it's doing.
1: So i was just going to jump in. You're talking about your days in America. I was wondering how, how important a kind of personal relationship with, with the driver is, and how well you get on with, and how important that is in terms of how effective you are. Uh, I know you got on very well with uh, with, and- with Mario Andretti and then engineered
0: his son as well. I think it's. I would have to say I think it's changed a bit. Um, in those days before data recorders came in, then the only information you had was what the driver said and then kind of as i say discussing with him and trying to understand what it is that's really holding him back because um you get some drivers who say almost nothing um the Finns being the classic mika and kimmy you have other drivers who sort of break down all 16 turns into endless detail and you get completely lost on you know, you've forgotten what they're even talking about by the time they got to the <laughs> end of the lap. So it's it's trying to work with the driver, and as I keep saying it, but trying to form that bond. And I think when teams were smaller and there were no data recorders, that was much easier than it is now, which is perhaps when you your very first question, who did I form the closest bond with, I'd probably say... Um, Bobby Rahal followed by Mario Andressi, the two IndyCar drivers along with Michael that I engineered while I was out there. Um, big Formula 1 teams now, I'm no longer... The last time I properly race engineered was Micker in 98. Um, so I'm slightly one step away. Of course I, I listen to everything the, the drivers are saying, everything the race engineers are talking to them but I'm one step removed. And now it's it's a different problem because um, with the advent of data recorders, then those will tell you everything the car's doing, although, of course, not necessarily why the car's doing it. And a lot of what the car does is, again, down to driver input. So two drivers can drive the car in a different way, come back and have different complaints, some... some drivers, Sebastian, for instance, um, contrary to popular belief, to get the car rotated early on, he liked the rear to be really stable. So he is not tolerant of turning oversteer. Um, whereas Mark Webber, actually, you, you might think is is the car that the driver that wants a slightly more stable car was the opposite. He was more comfortable to have the car moving a bit on on entry. Um, Bec- because he didn't concentrate quite as hard as Sebastian did on getting the car rotated very early on, which is Sebastian's big thing. So all those di- slightly different styles mean that you do see differences in driver performance if the car's handling slightly differently amongst teammates.
2: A, I've got a question here from David, actually, um, talking about exactly this. Uh, was there anything from the data or Seb's feedback they could explain why Mark was often better than Seb in the high-speed stuff. Um, I've read that uh, Mark was ace in fast corners, but I don't understand how he often beat Seb at Monaco as well. Was it commitment, a matter of feel, or simply as there being less or no corners to a V?
0: Mark was, generally speaking, quicker in in the fast corners. I think he he obviously had a very good eye for the fast corners. Um, He was... Mark's weakness, if anything, was tyre management. and that particularly hurt him when he got on. Th- when we got onto the towers that were more fragile than the, than the Bridgestones before. Um, but Sebastian had a very good technique for rotating the car in the sort of open, the sort of classic open corners that you get in a medium-speed corner. Um, or med- yeah. Monaco is a different problem. Um, it's quite a unique circuit for many reasons, but one of them is that the, I think the proximity of the barriers and the nature of the corners means it's not actually about getting the car rotated very early. So um, it, that seemed to help Mark's technique kind of uh, input, I, I would say around Monaco, Sebastian and Mark, there wasn't too much to choose between them.
2: There's, you mentioned obviously Bobby Rahal, Mario Andretti. Um, am I right in thinking that you also sort of had quite a good relationship with Damon Hill? Because uh, there's a question here from someone called Matt. Um, uh, do you think Damon Hill is an underappreciated talent? And how does he rank among the other great names you have worked with?
0: Yeah, I, did, I had a very, a fun, very close relationship <laughs> with Damon. And, and Damon, uh, I came, I wasn't officially. Uh, Damon's race engineer in 96, but I kind of was de facto and, and the same with said with McLaren in 98. And um, I think once, if you are the race engineer, clearly you form a closer bond than if I'm merely the the kind of technical director or chief designer or whatever title. So, um, to answer kind of where does Damon rank, I think it's, Damon is a bit of an enigma. Um, I think in 96 we, we had a better car than anybody else um so his main rival was DC and D- uh, David Coulthard who was um still in the, in the ascendancy um but Damon had a very good feel for the car uh his feedback was very good and there were, there were days where he was absolutely on the money you know I think um Many people talk about his driving the Western in Suzuka in 94, but in 96 he very quietly put a lot of extremely strong drives in. Um, I think with all these drivers, how you then rate against other people, you know, if we'd had, I don't know, Ayrton or, or Schumacher in the car alongside Damon, where would he have fared? It's academic. Who knows? I don't know.
2: Um, Joe, when you want to jump, in, please do because I'm actually because I'm looking this way. I can't actually see you. It's as if you're not here. <laughs> um, uh, we mentioned a while ago uh, some drivers and how that mentally they're not as strong and they'll get something in their heads. And you see, I, you do see it quite a lot in Formula One. As an engineer, is is part of your job to try and make sure these little fission cracks don't appear in their kind of overall performance because. We've seen so often in history, drivers kind of with a small little something in their minds just kind of ruins a race or might ruin a season. Is that are you, obviously you're engineering the car, but is there also that mental side as an engineer that you've got to try and keep these people in, in the right direction as it were?
0: Yeah, that, that is for sure all part of the job. Um, I mean, I've always approached that merely as, as trying to earn the drivers um, Trust and respect, if you like, and so if he feels that he can trust you to do the the job correctly and to engineer in terms of setup and race strategy and everything else, the car um, as well as possible, then that gives him a feeling of confidence that kind of that area of his area is covered, but of course that is only part of the whole gambit there's all the other bits of kind of you know, getting involved in silly politics with other drivers like Damon did in 95, um, kind of the slight kind of feeling that he wasn't being fairly treated within the team that Mark had in the end of 2010-11, you know, all those things, That that's something different again.
2: Now, for all you listeners out there who haven't visited the motorsport shop, I highly recommend you do because there's an exclusive 10% off to podcast listeners on all the Adrian Newey products. Available until the end of July, you can get 10% off Adrian's book, How to Build a Car, a model of the amazing Williams FW14B designed by Adrian, and this particular one is even signed by the driver, Nigel Mansell. Just go to the shop and add pod 10 at the checkout to claim your discount on these uh, these awesome items so head over to the motorsport shop and make the most of that now
1: i just wanted to ask uh, in your book i remember there was a a really interesting part where you talked about the tension between when you're coming to design a car the tension between the safety aspect and uh, performance aspect and that those discussions you would have with drivers about whether to strengthen the nose cone, I think was, was one of the examples you gave, um, versus the performance. And the driver would always want it strengthened, and you would be thinking, well, we need to be competitive. And I just wanted to explore that sort of tension, really, between what you wanted and what the driver wants.
0: Well, I mean, that's, those days happily, I think, have largely gone. And that's one of the sort of things which I do feel the FIA... Um, Initially, sort of championed by Sid Watkins, has done an extremely good job of of improving safety through sp- crash testing, load testing, specifications of the of the car um, to make sure that we have to produce a car that's as safe as it reasonably can be. Go back to kind of the mid eighties, or and before, obviously. Then it it was much more down to the the design designer of the car, as to how he made that judgment between trying to make the car as light and um, therefore fast as possible, a few metres overweight, versus a bit overweight and and heavy and sorry, obviously heavy um, and and slower as a result. And as a designer, it's, it's something I never enjoyed make, trying to get that compromise. I've probably went, if I'm honest, I went generally on the light side on the basis that nobody's going to thank you for a slow, safe car. Um,
1: Does that sort of create pressure professionally for you then? And and how did you deal with that when you were uh, in the 80s and the 90s?
0: It did. I mean, I guess I was young enough and stupid enough not to really think too much about it. other than to start discussing, even in those days, that was in IndyCar, about kind of how are we going to get some safety tests in here. Um, but IndyCar at the time, it was it was it was too small to be leading um, how you went about safety through research. Formula One, with its its bigger funding, was was the more natural route. And it, it led the way initially, although IndyCar now is, I have to say, doing a, a cracking job on that. And um, there's lots of things Formula One probably can learn from IndyCar. I want to
2: talk about two drivers you worked with at Williams, um, who had sort of, I would say, quite differing ways of going about achieving the same goal. Uh, Nigel Mansell and Alan Prost. Uh, with, with Nigel, he does he splits opinion, whether that's in the press, the public, or in teams that you, you talk to have worked with him. Um, am I right to think that you're, you, you, were, you're a fa- you are a fan because you knew when he got in the car, that was what the car could do? Whereas with Alan Prost, you know, and he wasn't looking for lap times and you, you, it sort of panicked you a bit because you didn't know where you were. Yeah. Is that about like fair?
0: I think, um, I mean, Nigel was obviously a a bit of a Marmite character. Um, I, was, I was on the, um, generally speaking, I mean, he could be extremely frustrating, but generally speaking, I was on the, on the um, like liked Nigel, um, he was, I found very, certainly kind of as an engineer, um, then I found him very straightforward to work with. Um, and as you say, the, the really good thing about Nigel, by and large, is when he get, got in the car, he knew he was going to give it everything. Come in, and th- and that's kind of where it was. He had the odd sleepy <coughs> moment. I mean, he actually, um, what turned out to be my first Grand Prix win in Mexico in '91. Then, for some reason, he completely fell asleep at the start race, and it was actually Ricardo that, w- although he wasn't as quick as Nigel, that went on to win it. Um, but he w- he was straightforward. He got on with it. Um, the only real row we had was actually about whether to. Um, race the active car in 92 or not, because he, he kind of wanted to just continue the old car. Um, Alan was a bit more frustrating, less, less easy to get to know. Um, and particularly in testing pre-season and indeed at race weekends, kind of leading up to qualifying, he would, wouldn't worry about trying to put a lap together. He would just work away at the car and work away at sections of the circuit. Um, and it was only at the last minute he put it all together, and that kind of before you got used to that was quite kind <laughs> un- of worrying. I do remember think it pre-season testing in I think it was Astoril, and we were kind of mid-pack in '93. Um, thinking, Christ, you know, we've gone from being completely dominant in '92 to obviously being a bit too sleepy over the winter and being caught up and overtaken, which wasn't the case it was Damon still getting to know the car and um, Alan doing as he just said
2: I d- It's Frank Dernie actually who tells the story of um, you mentioned there that Nigel didn't want to use the active car mm-hmm. and uh, eventually he realised that it was the way to go then um, and uh, William you spent a long time because it was a totally different chassis because they actually the ch- obviously the, the kind of the pipe work went through the chassis yeah. um, and the mechanics were building up this chassis and car for him. And a journalist came over and apparently Nigel said, oh, they've finally given me an active car. And apparently all the mechanics just downed tools and went to have tea, <laughs> so, so annoyed. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, you, you know obviously now technical direction and things like that. And you, as you said, you're slightly, slightly removed from actually dealing with the drivers on an everyday basis. Have you seen differences between current drivers, Max, Alex, and the likes of Damon and Nigel, who were so much older when they got in the sport. And while Max has probably, probably did more races than some of them before he got to Formula One, it must be different dealing with someone who's 10 years younger, you know, who's a third of their life younger, as it were. Has that been apparent, or does it not actually make any difference to, from yours?
0: That's a very good question. Um Certainly, has changed the, the, um, my early years in motor racing, I was always engineering, race engineering drivers that were older than me, um, and s- which is why I initially grew a beard to try and make myself look older. And it's, I didn't really shave that off until I was probably about 28 or so. Um, whereas now it's most obviously very definitely the, the other way around. Um, and I've grown it again, I'm not sure where that is. Where I think one of the things about motor racing is that people grow up very quickly. Um, It can arguably, it's now gone too extreme where if if kids are taken out of school uh, and so they spend their life at a kart track, they end up with no social life, no friends of their own age because they're at the kart track. then they, I, th- I do worry that they end up kind of slightly lost. You know, the ones that go on to then be successful Formula One drivers, they can be slightly lost souls themselves because they've had their childhoods taken away from them. Um, and I think if you kind of step back a bit, probably a few readers can see a few that are suffering as actually that problem or have been, one of them's actually I think now been through it but did go through it. Um, But they are quite mature in how they handle the car, they're used to handling a car. Um, They're used to working with engineers, mechanics, teams basically from a a very young age. Um, So if you like, their road dust, their track time is Probably not dissimilar to the to the older generation who started much later and got into Formula One much later. It's so everything's shifted, just shifted younger, and if you take Max as as the outstanding current example, um, why is he 22 now, 23, something like that? And, and you would never guess it in the way he conducts himself at the racetrack. Um, at race weekends, one of the leaders of the team, and he, he's he's and say, done that so. That rather suggests it's, it's back to this thing of kind of how long you've been in that kind of arena, perhaps more than your actual age.
2: I suppose with Kimi, when he came in, he's, I think he'd done 16 car races. You know.
0: um, yeah. And Kimi was much more green. You know, I, I think Kimi would, could not have come close to leading a team, um, or being the number one in the team that early on, uh, come 2005, then he was the number one in the team. Um, but he didn't quite have the gravity at that point that, say, Max has now, despite the fact he's a little bit older by then, I guess. Um, people mature in different ways. you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com/host.
2: Uh, now we obviously want to move on to sort of the, the more engineering side of it. I'm um, aware of the time, but there's, there is a question in here. You, you were mentioning sort of young drivers getting in. There's a question somewhere in this in this. Uh, um, all these sheets of paper about your son Harrison and whether you kind of helped with setup up and everything like that um, which I thought was quite nice uh, did, did you sort of get quite involved as a, as a racing dad with your, your history
0: um, I try not to <laughs> <laughs> that's a yes isn't it <laughs> no, well it, it, it actually depends a little bit on the team so um, without mentioning names we perhaps haven't been as Good as we could have been with hindsight, of, of which teams we chose for Harry to drive for. Um, and so the teams that struggled a bit more, then I ended up getting a bit involved a little bit. But it's. I would rather. N- I enjoy it to an extent if it's a small team. Um, there's actually a, the team that he drove for uh, two seasons ago in LMP2, uh, a team called Algarve. Then actually being a bit involved with the engineering there was fun because it was a small little team. The the team boss, um Stuart is a very easy guy, very outgoing guy to to get on with and so that's quite a fun little thing to do. It was a you know, very low low time on my part. But um to go along and actually on one of the races end up race engineering because um Stuart's race engineer was away or off sick that weekend. I ended up being Harry's race engineer so <laughs> talking to him and his teammates um, on the radio is quite fun
1: We should probably congratulate Harry for his um, drive over the weekend at Daytona
0: Yeah, no, thank you yeah, no, he, he, um, he did really well actually He's a mature driver I think um, they're losing power through the night so uh, they we're feeling a little bit of pressure to try and keep the pace up um, but they all did a cracking job
1: there's a lovely, lovely story again in your book about um, when he was karting and you uh, he heard a rival, I think, I think it was Mark Webber who was giving him some some tips and uh, a rival carter said how we don't stand a chance, we've got Webber coaching him and newly end race engineering him.
0: Yeah, no, I do remember that moment. <laughs> it was at, at Wilton Mill, which is a kart track, um, kind of not that far from here. And uh, I think, exactly as I say, uh, I was kneeling down chatting to Harry, um, uh, Mark was on the other side kind of chatting to him as well and, and uh, this lad came past with his dad saying we haven't got a chance we might as well pack up now.
2: <laughs> now on, on to the sort of the more engineering um, side of it I wanted to ask you about kind of your, your role models or the people you sort of you looked up to and um, there's, there's quite an interesting question here from uh, Jan I think it is. Uh, saying the late uh, Dr Harvey Posselwaite played a pivotal role in your early career, not to mention a few other young engineers too, um, who would move on to great roles, yet yeah, interviewers rarely mention him. Um, I'd love to hear some of Mr Newey's thoughts on his influence.
0: Well, Harvey was, I mean, uh, first of all, he was a, he was a really good character, um, one of those sort of slightly eccentric, lov- but very lovable um, English public school boys, ex-public school, um, but just had a, g- a great charm about him, and he was he was very good to me. Um, when I started at did then uh, I was hired as junior aerodynamicist, which was also, as it turned out, senior aerodynamicist, so <laughs> it's unbelievable when you look at the, uh, the hundreds, well, not hundreds, but over a hundred aerodynamicists that we're now up to, or the top teams are up to, we're a little, we're a little bit smaller at the top um, Ferrari, so it's certainly over that. And uh, yeah, so he, he gave me that trust to just get on and look at the aerodynamics of the Formula One car, um, but would always come along and take an interest in and in kind of see what was up to. Um, I suppose as a 21 year old, fresh out of university, then. Having dreamt of being in trying to get into Formula One as a designer, um, kind of, I don't know, from when I was about 12, and avidly reading about the, the engineers of the time of which Harvey was definitely one. Um, to end up working for the great man was almost slightly intimidating. And the end of the first week at uh Vittipold is, I kind of in those days, it was, we still had sort of everybody going off to lunch on a Friday, having a couple of pints <laughs> and coming back. And Because it was my first week, I was very well behaved and sort of had one shandy or something. came back and uh, there was a little terrapin building where engine there's only five or so of, en- of us engineers. And then there was a little partition in and, um, Harvey's office at the end. And he was kind of leant over his drawing boards, kind of... Like that looking for all the worlds if he's concentrating in intense detail at whatever he was drawing. So I plucked up the courage to say, <coughs> um, Harvey, can I uh, ask you a question? And uh, he didn't move and I came round <laughs> <So he> actually <laughs> slumped head hard against the board. It was tracing paper in those days, so it sort of sl- dribbles slightly and there's a big run to in the yeah. tracing paper and that um that was one of the things that helped me get over my sort of slight <laughs> nervousness towards him.
2: From only £3 for three months, you can get unlimited access to all of Motorsport Magazine's content, both online and in print. To sign up, just go to motorsportmagazine.com forward slash trial. Um, can you think of other names that sort of were, I think role models is, is a bad is, is not the right phrase, but people you sort of looked up to when you were younger and wanting to get into Formula One.
0: Uh, the, the kind of big design names at the time were um, Harvey, as I say, uh, Patrick Head, Gordon Murray, uh, Colin Chapman. Not so much by then, because I think he, he was he was more the figurehead than the than the the real chief engineer or chief designer or whatever. Um, and yes, I think, I suppose, I don't, I never really had heroes, but if you said who were my heroes, it would have been those people.
2: D- looking back at your career so far, and, and I know this is a difficult question to answer, so I apologise now, um, is there something you look back on and you think that that was probably my greatest achievement in engineering terms? I know you've you've always been, quite rightly, obviously a fan of your Leighton house, just because it, it did change the direction of Formula One cars and people after that of making them smaller and tighter and, and neater. Is there anything else? I mean, it can be something much smaller, it doesn't have to be an entire car, but is there something you look back on and think that that was a great success in terms of time on the track, but from
0: obviously all from my, my head? Hmm. I mean, generally speaking, it's about the package, which is why the 881 Mark House um, I think, was as proud of. Um, I mean, in... If you then, I think the the uh, the Red Bull R B five as a car that then we were able to develop through that whole V eight era. so all all the cars that they're not not the R B five because that didn't win the championship, the following four were all very close relatives of the five. So I think I'd be proud of that car because it obviously gave us our first proper success here at Red Bull. Um which given the sort of, I suppose on a personal level, the gamble I'd taken in in joining a, a very small upstart team um, to get our first win or first wins that year was, was very rewarding to what was a completely new set of regulations. So, And that car again, I think, um, had quite a few features on it that then became standard. Going back to pull-rod suspension made so much better sense. Uh, Going to side exhaust to blow the diffuser, all those things came in with that car and were, were subsequently copied. and I suppose you know it's that old saying that sincerest uh, form of flattery is, is is plagiarism or copying, whatever the exact phrase is. And um, <coughs> so, of course, when a, it's, it's frustrating when people copy, but at the same time, it's a huge compliment.
2: There's, sorry, to just give it, uh, there's a really good question here that I, I quite like. That's um, yeah, here we go, from Peter. Uh, when you wander the grid with your clipboard pre-race, what is the best thing you've ever spotted on a rival car that made you wish you'd thought of it?
0: <laughs> oh, made me oh, wish I'd thought of it? <coughs> well, the, actually, the clipboard thing now is a bit of a joke. <laughs> <laughs> <It's> <laughs> because that, every, everybody, everybody is so... Uh, we have so many photographs that you can, generally speaking, guess it out of photographs, but... Still do it just to find everybody up, and, and occasionally it's uh, you know you do you do you do see things from a perspective point of view that's more difficult to see from a photograph, um, and it's for me it's time efficient because I don't spend lots of time looking through all the photographs, uh, but in terms of straightforward copying, I mean generally speaking, it's it's looking, at w- looking at what people have done, and then thinking kind of kind of why have they done that, and then that can just be the sort of something that sets you thinking about trying to look at something in a slightly different way. So, very often it's not a direct copy. I mean, occasionally, of course, we do direct, direct copies. You know, um, Ferrari, two or three years ago, lowered the upper side impact tube. We copied that the following year. Other bits and pieces, of course, we just copy because they do happen to work on our car, but very often, if you take something on the aerodynamics of somebody else's car and simply put it on yours. As an individual feat item it won't work because the aerodynamics is, is so interrelated that you have to develop a package. Um, if you said what has changed most in Formula One, which is developing a bit from that, then it's actually the technology that we use and the size of the teams. Um, you know the the car that we build now we could i guess in a way we could have designed that 20 years ago but we couldn't have manufactured it so manufacturing techniques materials all the things that we rely on outside industry from uh, we then use very hard same with all our computational modeling techniques, be it aerodynamics or simulation of the car going around a lap or the, the the software and the hardware that we use for our driver in the loop simulators. Those things didn't exist 20, 30 years ago. The, 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 so general industry is probably what has changed Formula One the most from a design point of view.
2: Mm. Sorry Joe, I jumped in there. Well, just
0: following on really from what you
2: were saying there, I was
1: w- w- wondering, has it become more difficult um to come up with that great idea and to to get that advantage uh, uh, over the course of your career um, so um the sort of the ideas that you may have had in in, in the eighties or the nineties and now because your teams are so big and there's so many brains working on things that the incremental advantages are so hard to find uh, or or do you still find them
0: no it, it has it does become harder and harder um, i think for two reasons first of all as you say, because the teams are so <coughs> big, then it it's becomes more and more difficult for one person to kind of come up with the big ideas, if you like. Um, the other reason, of course, is that the regulation book has got so thick. You know, the, the rule book in 88, as far as I can remember, when I first got into Formula One, was probably sort of 20 pages. Now it's... It's well over a hundred, you know, and it's the the lo- and that's before we get into all the appendices and all the other technical bulletins that we also have to abide by. So, it, the the rule book restricts heavily what we can do, and that is one of the things which I think is so sad about the proposed 2021, well, not proposed now they're going through, um, 2021 regulations that it's just ever more restrictive and to me that's not what Formula 1 should be, it should be about finding ways that control performance and budget but then give as much freedom as possible within those two kind of parameters.
2: Before we go on to the next question I should remind you that we have a motorsport shop that is absolutely packed to the rafters with signed memorabilia, posters, books, models and everything you could ever want from the world of motoring and motorsport. Have a look at motorsportmagazine.com forward slash shop. What's more, as a podcast listener, you get ten percent discount on everything in the shop, which is valid until the end of July. Please use the code POD ten. That's pod ten. Do you think it's going to be more
1: difficult to, to do your job from with the new regulations in twenty twenty one?
0: Well, I, I remember when when I was at March in I think it must have been the end of 1982 when the flat-bottom regulations for Formula 1 cars came in, which banned the the ground effect Venturi tunnels. And uh, Ralph Bellamy, the chief designer on the Formula 2 car, coming in and saying, well that's it, we might as well stop wind tunnel testing because aerodynamics are over, it's finished. (laughs) And cursory look at the 21 rules then you have all these boxes where you can put bodywork, where you can't put bodywork prescribed shapes to bodyworks, works, radius of curvatures, angle changes. I mean, it, it, it is just, it's, it's just a, it's a kind of Ben-Hurver regulation book. Um, and as I say, to me, I'm I'm not sure it will achieve what it's setting out to do, but even if it does, it seems an incredibly inelegant way of doing it. Go back to that Ralph Bellamy sort of wind tunnels band. I think what will happen is you, you superficially look at the regulations and you think, oh, it's so restrictive, we can't do anything. But actually within that, there's, there are quite a lot of things you can do, but they will be very, very small. So I think from a spectator point of view, the cars will look, I mean, they already look similar to each other. They'll, they will look even more identical to each other. And it'll be about tiny details on... The undersides of front wings and the undersides of floors and stuff that nobody will be able to see but will make the performance differences so will it converge the performance of the cars um don't know i doubt it in the first year Uh, it could mean that actually the performance gap between the front teams or team and and the mid pack gets even bigger Will it make overtaking easier? Probably, as lo- long as nobody finds it, finds a loophole around it. Um, but there are other ways of over- making overtaking easier, in my opinion.
2: Presumably, you're busy looking for those loopholes.
0: Every team will be for sure. <laughs>
2: um, I'm I'm wary that there's sort of there's people outside your office, and you've you've got sort of perhaps much more important things to be doing. So what i was going to do is just take a couple of um, engineering questions from our our readers, and then. Um, play a quick game of word association with sort of people and things from your, from your past. Um, we're talking about overtaking things like that. There's an interesting question here from Ari. Uh, would it be possible to have a dirty air quota with the current CFD and air tunnel technology, um, which would allow technical freedom as long as the weight behind the car um, can follow the, the rules? Um, or, or is everything so prescriptive? Persp- persp- uh, persp- I can't even talk. So, yeah, thank you. Uh, I might as well give you this mic and you ask yourself the questions, um, which uh, would allow cars to look different. So I think the dirty air is is one of the problems of the lack of overtaking. I don't think it's obviously the problem. Um, could Is that feasible? Is that Would that work in terms of having a quota of dirty air behind a car?
0: It's an interesting idea. Yes, I mean, you, you could try to put boundaries in and do something along those lines. I think there's probably simpler ways of doing it but I, I, I agree with the principle of, as I said setting out what do you want to try to achieve, putting down a, a much simpler set of regulations um, This is what, what we have for twenty one at the moment is effectively what looks in its origins as if it was a mid-90s IndyCar that's then been kind of manipulated into something that produces a small weight for the following car. But there's lots of other ways of doing that. It's not the only way of producing a small weight for the following car. Um, In the process of doing that, as we said, we've got this very restrictive set of regulations. I just think that's fundamentally the wrong approach.
2: There's a question here from Clay asking about you know, your vision for, for future Formula 1. If you had a blank piece of paper, you didn't have to ans- answer to any, you know, teams that obviously are wanting to keep things the same if they're at the front of the grid and things like that. No politics involved. You need to keep the rules as simple as possible. What, what would be your rules?
0: I, I think, first of all, it, it is absolutely true that we're all spending too much and that ultimately is is going to be uh, potentially the doom of Formula 1 if, if the budgets aren't kept restricted down a bit. Um, because very big budgets are dependent on manufacturers and by and large, Red Bull obviously being an exception to that, uh, although with our Honda partnership on the engine side. Um, if manufacturers pull out, then Formula 1's, or you only end up Worst solution, worst position where you end up with one manufacturer in spending a huge amount of money, (coughs) then you have a complete one-horse race. Um, But there are other, again, there's all sorts of ways of controlling budgets. To me, the the thing that's most appealing is actually to restrict the aerodynamic pipe, so the amount of wind tunnel time, CFD time, which is already restricted, but restrict it much, much more heavily. If you restrict the how much research you can do, that shrinks your aerodynamic team. But we're probably in the position where you could even think about banning wind tunnels altogether. Um, there are other cars uh, in other formulas that have never been a wind tunnel and been very successful. Um, and then go to some sort of points based system for how much you can body work you can make, how many updates you can do, each yeah, that sort of thing to restrict your manufacturing size. And then have a much more open rule book with, as you say, a, a way of making sure that the design of the car make doesn't make overtaking too hard. It's. I think everybody we all tend to have a habit of, of kind of jumping to the solution before we think spend enough time thinking about what the problem is and I think that's what's happened here right
2: um, so just before we finish I've, I've got a few names and things written down here um, if you just reply with the first thing that comes into your head um, as long as it's obviously repeatable uh, starting with Ron Dennis
0: <laughs> um uh, It's not that uh, I've got to think for something. Which uh, is no, I mean I think Ron. Ron is he's an enigma. He can be an amazing person, and he can be very difficult. Leighton House. Uh, unfulfilled um, promise, really.
2: Yourself, Adrian Newey. Uh,
0: lucky to be where I am.
2: Uh, Bobby Rahal.
0: Top guy. Yeah. Very very straight. Red Bull Racing. Just been uh, I think, uh, what we do here. You know, we've we don't pretend to be anything we're not. I, I think we're honest and enthusiastic, and just try to get on with being doing the best job we can.
2: And then last one, the next five years.
0: That I've got no idea. Um, I am. You know, I'm less. I'm trying to do other things as well as Formula One. Um, the guys here um, are doing a great job of kind of picking up. So I suppose I'm, I'm trying to I still spend time on the drawing board, and I, I love drawing and I love the technical challenges. But I'm also now enjoying trying to work with the guys more and more to I don't know if mentor is the wa- right word. It sounds I always think mental sounds slightly condescending. I certainly don't want it to be like that. Um, but to work, work with all the engineers out there and kind of discuss things, but then very much leave it to them to draw it. Mm. So you know, some of the bits on on um, this year's, or yeah, 2020's Formula One car come straight off my board, but there's usually the Mount, which has come off... Everybody else's CAD systems, and I'm every bit as proud of those guys' work as, as the little the few bits I've done. I think um, you know that's that's part of the fun of it to see them developing.
2: Adrian, thank you so much for sparing so much time. You know, before we came in here, you were literally on on the drawing board, um, and uh, you're obviously a very busy man. So thank you very much for joining us. Um, it's been fascinating podcast as always Alan. thank you so much for recording it joe thank you very much for joining us it's great to have the uh, the head honcho from motorsport here and to sort of clean up my act a bit um we're going to be back with lots more of these engineering formula one drivers podcasts uh, do join us for the rest of the series it's going to be a great one thank you very much for watching thank you very much for listening and we'll see
0: you soon Bye-bye. thank you thank you very much